Congratulations. You did it. We did it. Although I couldn't have done it without you. We made it out of the ancient world. Such a fantastic time, the largest segment in all of world history in the history of humanity, but we made it out of the ancient world. And from the ancient world, boom, we get into this next period where all kinds of discoveries and education and everything else with advancements in science, et cetera, all explode. It now, no, that that's not the way it happens, is it? No, that's not the way it happens because that's not the age we're moving into. As discussed in the towards the end of the last podcast, which wrapped up our 15 podcasts on ancient history, we're not getting into an age of exploration, an age of enlightenment, renaissance, nothing. No, we're getting into the Middle Ages. And again, Middle Ages, if you want to use the politically correct term, however, as we also know, the Middle Ages is also called the Dark Ages. So why dark? Why would it have this 1,000-year, roughly 1,000-year time period be given this name? And in this podcast, that's what we're going to take a look at. It's the early Middle Ages. But before we even get there, I would like to demonstrate, even if this is your, especially if this is your only podcast you're going to listen to on the Middle Ages and you want to jump eventually to the Renaissance and beyond. For those that stick with me, though, especially with these podcasts on the Middle Ages, I'd like to, in this podcast, to give a brief overview to demonstrate such an unbelievable, stark contrast to the world that the human beings were just coming out of, the ancient world, to that of the Middle Ages. So a couple of ways that I'm going to demonstrate that in this podcast is, one, I'm going to look at the four institutions of society and how massively they changed from getting out of the ancient world to the world of the Middle Ages. I'm then going to just give a brief overview of characteristics of medieval culture and characteristics of the dominating force of this time period, that of Christianity and the Christian mindset. So let's look at, again, to begin, which is the, or the types of differences that we're going to see as we leave the ancient world and come to the world of the Middle Ages. But first, I want to take a field trip. You deserve a field trip. You've been listening to these 15 podcasts on ancient history and these world history podcasts. I think it's time for a field trip. Now, I didn't say I was paying for that field trip. I just said I'm going to give you an idea to go on this field trip. So here's what I'd like you to do as you're perhaps driving in your car, exercising, or however you're listening to this podcast, is to pick a city, a city anywhere in the world, maybe that you've traveled to and want to go back to, or come on, think outside of the box a little bit. How about a place you've heard about, read about? perhaps saw on TV or on a documentary that you'd love to go to. And what I'd like you to do is think about that city. And unfortunately, this is not something that we can do in an exchange the way I can in my college classroom. But when I put this, this question, this opportunity out to my students, I tell them that when they rattle off the city, not the country, but the city that they would like to go to, that after they say city, the, the city, the location, I'm going to say one of three words, before, during, 
or after? I'll say one of those three words, before, during, or after. And then initially there might be a reluctance and somebody raising their hand. So that's when I walk right past a student and then step back two steps and then boom, call on them, put them on the spot and say, come on, where do you want to go? And of course, when they give me the deer in the headlights look, I'll say, Highland Hills, Ohio. Okay, they're already there. So, okay, lame joke. So, come on, give me a name of a city. And to summarize, if they choose any city in the Americas, that would be after. They would hear me say the word after. Within Europe, if they chose cities like Florence, Salerno, London, I would either say before or after, as I would also say before or after in almost any city in Africa and any major city that's still on the world map today in Asia even. My point being, and even Australia would be after, my point being is that these cities that we see on the world map today or might have been on the ancient map but are no longer with us today were marked out by the human population either during the ancient world or after the Middle Ages. But in most classes, a student will not say the name of a city where I will say during. One could argue perhaps Paris landed itself on the world map during the Middle Ages. But by and large, most major cities that we know of today were either established by the ancient population or were established in the age of the Renaissance and beyond. In other words, not during the Middle Ages. Why is this? That's what we're going to take a look at now to help to answer that when we examine the four institutions of society where you can begin to understand that pattern on why major cities that the human population dwells that's still, again, on a world map with us today, was either established in the ancient world or after the Middle Age world. So in other words, before the Middle Ages or after the Middle Ages, but not during. Why? Well, let's take a look at those four institutions. First, we look at the political. Of course, you know, I'm going to go there first. In the political world, or the, the, the political institution of society, we're leaving the world of empire. Think about that. What empires do we see land itself on the map in the age of the Middle Ages? Okay, I see that one really good history student in the back there that raised his or her hand saying, wait a minute, what about Charlemagne's empire? But as we're going to find out when we get there, that really doesn't qualify the term empire. Because one of the criteria for the definition of empire is it endures for a very long time, long after the founding population dies, that empire continues to exist and even possibly expands its borders. The exact opposite happens with Charlemagne. Charlemagne, quote unquote, gets empire, achieves it during his lifetime, but it quickly disintegrates after that. Great guess, and one could argue, and a really thin argument, that maybe one empire did show its face in the Western world during the Middle Ages, but by and large, empire doesn't exist. Empire is for the ancient worlds, the Roman Empire, and all of those that came before it, lasting again for centuries. We're leaving the world of the political institution of empire to the ancient world, 
and we're going to move into the Middle Ages to the political system of feudalism, which I'll flesh out later on. But again, so we're leaving the political institution of empire because we're getting out of the ancient world, moving to the age of feudalism. Second institution, social. Again, because of how many major cities founded during the age of the Roman Empire and the Greeks before that, not to mention the pre-Greek empires as well in the eastern half of the Mediterranean Sea, we're going to be leaving the world of the cosmopolitan slash urban. And we're going to be getting into the age of manorialism, rural living. The age of the big cities is largely going to be left behind for the next roughly 1,000 years. In terms of economic, which goes somewhat hand in hand with the social and political, in the ancient world, what we're leaving behind is commercialism in terms of its economic system and where it's going to be now dominated for the next 1,000 years by agrarian. This is not necessarily in any order of importance, political, social, and economic, but I left the fourth institution purposely for the last one that we're going to discuss because that's going to segue in to these next parts that we'll discuss as we flush out to try to understand this new world we're entering into in history. And that's the institution of religion. During the last class on the ancient world, when I have my history students in front of me, I explained to them that for those that loved the way I explained, especially with the schematics that I can use, the military campaigns of Alexander, and then a century later for that of Hannibal, that if students really enjoyed that, and they think there was more of that coming, I want to manage their expectations and, and let them down easy that that age is behind us. The age of military of, of planning and drastic improvements in thinking, is, again, is behind us. To the point that, as I also uh, brace my students for, that in some cases it may seem as though as we head into the world of the Middle Ages and beyond all the way to the end of this course, it'll seem like it started out as a military history course and then changed to a course on world religions. Even though, again, I'm not going to get into religion in the sense of the beliefs of various deities and their followers, what I'm getting at is that religion is going to play such an unbelievable influence and have such make such a dominating presence on the world stage, especially in the Western world, that's where I'm focusing. That is, I would tell my students, if they came up to me and said, Professor, loved your lectures, loved our discussions on the ancient world, but now heading into the Middle Ages, can you please cover the Middle Ages for the next six weeks and not once mention anything that has to do with religion? No religious thinkers, no religious founders. Don't mention religion at all. But please carry on with your discussion now in the Middle Ages. That's going to be for the next six weeks, according to the syllabus. That's a yeah, great. No problem. Have a seat. We'll be done in an hour. Then we can come back five and a half weeks later and talk about the Renaissance. Okay, a little bit of an extreme, a little bit of an exaggeration, but really not far from it. Religion is going to have a dominating force on the European world stage like they have never seen before. Again, somewhat lending support 
to the historians that believe that the Roman Empire, the last thing that it did was fade away. The last thing that it did was fall or end, rather the opposite or the other way around. And no, it didn't move to Byzantium or eventually Constantinople either. But religion, the Roman Empire, simply succumbed to the dominating force of the empire in the 300s AD, 150, 175 years before its quote-unquote fall, by giving in to the forces of Catholicism, Christianity, hence changing its name, Roman Catholic Church. So again, when we're living in the world of the ancient world, when we talk about religion, now remember too, religion is a Latin word that means to tie or to bind together. In the ancient world, it was dominated from 400,000 BC to the 300s AD. Religion was largely dominated by polytheism, meaning many gods, and paganism. Yes, we did talk about some of the monotheistic religions, especially in the importance of Judaism. But by and large, most of the population was engaging in paganism slash polytheism. We're leaving that behind in the ancient world. As we head into the age of the Middle Ages, it's going to be dominated by the monotheistic adherence to Christianity. One God. So paganism and polytheism is, pun intended, history and Christianity and monotheism is the order of the day going forward. So those are the four institutions, again, of society. Political, we're going from empire to feudalism. Social, cosmopolitan and urban, we're leaving behind, heading into manorialism and the rural lifestyle. In terms of their economics, we're leaving the age of commercialism, heading into agrarian. And then for religion, leaving polytheism and paganism and moving to Christianity and monotheism. So, from here, let's look then at a couple of brief characteristics of this medieval culture that we're moving into. First off, what we're going to see is a substantial amount of influence from what we call Germanic culture. A Germanic cultural base we're going to find distinguishing itself from the and having an impact on the peoples of Western and Eastern Europe that was distinctly different from the ancient world in which they left behind. When I say Germanic, I'm sure your mind is going to the world map to one of the largest countries in Europe, that being Germany, and it's not far from that connection. Germanic in its root word simply means next to or neighboring. And what, again, as some of those historians like Bury and Perian, amongst others, that theorized why did Rome fall or fade or simply move, if we're not going to talk about the influence of Christianity, some argue that Rome was being influenced by the populations to the north that once separated them when Rome was in the age of the Republic and much smaller. But once Rome went into the age of empire, and again, expanded up to modern-day count of 35 modern-day countries around the Mediterranean Sea. It was a matter of time before they would start rubbing elbows with a massive population to the north in modern-day Northern Europe that was going to have a distinctly different cultural base than that that the Romans enjoyed. So we're going to start seeing this Roman influence, Germanic influence moving forward. That's the, one of the two characteristics that I wanted to stress here. The second one 
is what we're going to witness. And we're going to witness it with unbelievably violent brutality. Is the dualism of church and state. So a brief review, getting back, even though we're segueing out of the ancient world, and I apologize if it seems like I'm constantly going back and forth, but that's what I said before in that last podcast. It's not as though 477 New Year's Day dawned and everybody woke up and it was the Middle Ages and the ancient world was dead and behind them. Not at all. Massive amount of overlap. That, and this, is, this, again, isn't yet more evidence of that. When I'm talking about the dualism of church and state in the ancient world, as we talked about with the Romans, it, it, polytheism? You want to adhere to the Roman mythology? Have at it. You want to follow Greek mythology in the eastern half of the Mediterranean world? Go nuts. Just pay your taxes. Pay the taxes. Be civil so that you're not a thorn in the Roman Empire's side. And go ahead and follow whatever God you want. Again, follow whatever God you want. Pay the taxes. You're good. But something happened after this man by the name of Jesus Christ came and went. In that three years that we know of in his ministry, he left behind such a small but powerful population of followers that continued to spread that, spread that message that the Roman emperors in the 100s and 200s and the first couple of decades in the 300s AD found that Christianity was influencing the Roman political system, whether they wanted to believe it or not. The more they tried to persecute, heck, kill the Christians, the more it seemed to draw more followers. Which is why when I said that when Constantine converted to Christianity, why did he convert? Amongst the reasons that I gave, do you remember me saying one of them being, did he finally admit that, you know what, if he can't beat them, join them? And maybe that will, the fact that we're allowing it, will make it less popular. How many of us know that nothing attracts people's attention like the forbidden. That which is allowed often gets a shrug of the shoulders from a lot of people and a roll in the eyes. Tell somebody it's forbidden, uh, now you've got their attention. So is that what went through Constantine's mind? The heck was saying it's forbidden anymore. Let's embrace it. In fact, let's go beyond that and say that's the official religion of the empire. And anybody that doesn't follow that, you're the ones now that are going to be persecuted. Maybe that will stop its influence, but it only blossomed even more. So by the late mid to late 300s, we found Christianity fully intertwined with the politics, the political system of the Roman Empire. Did it get to the point that while initially Constantine wanted Christianity to be subservient to the state, did the popularity of Christianity, its expanding in headcount decade after decade, did it finally get to the point that the inverse happened and the political system ended up becoming subservient to the religious institution? Did the Roman Empire ultimately get dominated by the religion of the day, Christianity, by the 400s? The power and influence of the Roman Catholic popes clearly was beginning to supersede the power and influence of the Roman emperors.
So when we talk about the dualism of church and state, we begin the age of the Roman Empire, the, the, excuse me, the Middle Ages, with religion and state clearly intertwined. We're going to see that get pushed away a little bit, and they get intertwined again in the 800s AD. And then after the 800s AD, when the Roman Catholic Church realizes the massive grave mistake it made, it will do everything in its power to get out of the bed with the politicians and to create a separate identity of church different from state. It will do everything it can starting in the 800s, and it's a movement, it's an effort that is still with the Roman Catholic Church in 2020. So, two very important characteristics of this medieval culture. One, that Germanic cultural base. Two, that dualism of church and state. The next several podcasts, all of them on the Middle Ages, are going to be coming back to these two important points. All right. When, so we got the characteristics of this culture, of this, of this population now that is going to continue to grow to be different from those of the middle of those of the ancient world. Now we're going to be moving in looking at the characteristics of Christianity. By the time we get done with this podcast, you'll have the clearly important points of how this Middle Ages was different than the Roman world so that in future podcasts we can begin and I won't stress again these definitions as we begin to move forward. I'll do a quick review always of the definition but I won't expand on it the way I will here. So Christianity a characteristic excuse me of Christianity. First off of these five important points, one was the belief in one god. That again is this idea of monotheism, mono meaning one. Distinctly different of course from the uh, paganism and polytheism of Roman mythology and Greek mythology. Remember again that in the world of mythology, you had to make sure you were doing three things right so that the god or goddess would smile on you and give you what you asked for. It had to be the right god, number one. Number two, it had to be for the right reason. Number three, it had to be for the right time. This Jesus Christ that came and went said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way where I come from, where I'm going back to, where I'm inviting you to, it's always the right reason. It's always the right time. And you pray to God, it's always the right God. Monotheism. Secondly, to stress again, without Judaism, there is no Roman Catholicism. Let's say that one more time. Without Judaism, without the Jewish foundation, there is no Roman Catholicism. I also, as a reminder, because I mentioned this before, for those listeners that did not uh, listen to the podcast on the ancient world, I am an ardent Roman Catholic. I'm coming right out. I do not talk about my politics. I don't say whether I'm a Republican or Democrat or how I lean, but I am a Roman Catholic, and I believe it's important for you, the listener, to know what viewpoint I'm coming from. Because there's several times as you're going to listen to these podcasts where I have my Roman Catholicism uh, shoved, let's just say, somewhere that's a little bit off color for me to talk about right now. Uh, yeah, and sometimes it's due to my big mouth. But again, I'll come clean and discuss those time periods and truly what I learned as a result of that. But I do mean that seriously. 
And I hope that's not offensive to Christians, especially Roman Catholics, who would like to believe that Judaism is completely separate from Christianity. If it's that separate, then why is the first reading at every Roman Catholic Mass, at every Mass, every weekend, why is there always a first reading from the Old Testament? Because that's our foundation. Without it, we don't, we're not where we're going to be today. So again, number one, belief in one God. Two, Judaic origin. Three, this one's so unbelievably important, which blows apart the importance of the social hierarchy that one witnessed in the age of the Roman Empire. Remember the patricians and the plebeians, the upper class and the lower class. Uh -uh. The third characteristic that's so important to understand of Christianity is this idea of equality. Everybody is equal. However, if in your mindset, and more importantly, through your actions, if you were to attempt to try to make yourself more important than the person next to you, at the expense of that person, would the two of you are going, the person that was last will be first, and you who are constantly putting yourself first, you'll be last. But treat everybody equitably, fairly, then everybody comes into this Garden of Eden together. So that's three, the third thing, equality. Fourth is a, defined, a definitive and repetitious ritual. That's what we'll eventually, as we'll talk about in a later podcast, called the Mass. This definitive and repetitious ritual, reviewing the time of Christ's last hours on this earth before he was crucified, that same act that is repeated time and time again at every Roman Catholic church and most Christian churches throughout the world, weekend after weekend, in many day after day, that definitive and repetitious ritual is going to keep the population continually engaged with the characteristics of Christianity. And the final idea, number five, is this idea of salvation. That you who are suffering now, you're paying now. And if you do God's work here on earth now and pay that price, carry your own cross, as Jesus had said many times recorded in the Gospels, where you're going, the Garden of Eden, it cannot get any better. To the point that Jesus even admitted, I can't tell you what heaven's like. It's so unbelievably awesome that all I can give you are these parables on what it is like. And even that doesn't do it justice, as he admitted. So those five characteristics, one, belief in one God, two, the Judaic origin, three, equality, four, that definitive and repetitious ritual, and then five, this idea of salvation. Those are the characteristics of Christianity. Those are five phrases, terms that one can write down. But how do those five things come together and impact the Christian attitude and the human Christian mindset? That is what we're going to begin the next podcast with, because the way those five different characteristics come together, ladies and gentlemen, as positive as that sounds, and I'm not here to say any of that is negative, but as positive as that sounds, as we're going to find out at the beginning of the next podcast, all of that will come together, will bring on 
the next 1,000-year period known as the Dark Ages. How can five things that are supposed to be such a massive improvement and nothing but a plus turn out to create such a massive drawback in human society? That's what we'll begin with with the next podcast. So thank you for listening. Go to my website, ceconsola.com. Please email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations as well. And if you like what was discussed here today, please leave me a review on the website as well. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.